Okay, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 9 this morning. And we've been going through our series on the fruit of the Spirit, uh, and we've hit them all, and today is self-control, the final aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Um, and self-control, it's not really a common idea in, in sort of the world that we live in is not uh, as normal maybe as it once was. Uh, I looked online to figure out kind of what the psychological take on this would be. And psychologytoday.com said that the, the self-control is the ability to manage one's impulses, emotions, and behaviors to achieve long-term goals. Uh, and then they went on to say that's what separates us from the animal kingdom. <laughs> so, um, then, then there was a whole little thing about how we're encouraged to overcome sort of our natural lack of self-control. And in, in their mind, there were, there were basically four things that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to uh, exhibit willpower. So we're supposed to decide to do a thing and then do it. Uh, and then we're supposed to uh, be patient and exercise what's called delayed gratification, if you've ever heard of that. In other words, waiting for the you know, cookie or the candy or the whatever, ice cream, right? Uh, then organization and planning was one of the, the key components. If you're organized and you plan, then you're more likely to exercise self-control. And then implementing goals. Those were the four things that they said. I'm not saying that those are necessarily wrong. I don't think they will help you achieve the self-control that Paul's talking about. And so that's what we're going to talk about. Because the problem here is that our entire culture opposes all of that as a value system. And here's some examples of what I mean. In uh, 1969, many of you uh, probably weren't around back then, right? Maybe a few. Frank Sinatra, famous singer, sang a song, you probably heard it, I did it my way, right? I did it my way. I didn't do the other things anybody else's way, I did what I wanted. That's the whole song. Then you have in uh, 1971, 1974, you have the, the uh, uh, McDonald's and Burger King sort of fight, and McDonald's was, you deserve a break today. You deserve it. Look, look at all that you have done. You deserve this. And then Burger King's was, have it your way. Have it your way. Do what you want. It's, I think that's still their motto, their slogan. They still use that. But there was these, I, I went back and watched these old commercials uh, of, from back then. They're hysterical if you watch them. They're so good. Uh, but yeah, those are the things. And then uh, there was a TV show that I used to watch called Parks and Rec. Maybe some of you have heard of it. Uh, has a Amy Poehler and some other folks on it. Anyway, they had an episode in 2011 where uh, on October 13th, they had what was called Treat Yourself Day. <laughs> and so that whole day, they treated themselves to whatever. And there's, there's a whole clip of them explaining what kinds of things. And, and uh, these two characters, uh, Donna and Tom, are explaining it, and they're saying, clothes, treat yourself, fragrances, treat yourself, massages, treat yourself, mimosas, treat 
treat this. This is a whole thing. Fine leather goods. And Donna goes on to say it's the best day of the year. And then Tom Haverford says, quote, this is our holy day. <laughs> I mean, and you know, it's a comedy show. So they're poking fun at things, but it's the truth that makes it worth poking at, right? Then we have a, uh, a famous pastor, who all of you will know, who lives down in Houston, pastors the largest church in America. He wrote a book called Your Best Life Now in 2004. His name is Joe Osteen. And that, that book was a bestseller uh, on the New York Times bestseller list for two years, sold over 8 million copies, which is a big deal for a Christian book, which is they kind of separate those. Uh, your best life now. It's for you. It's all about you. It's not about waiting. It's not about willpower. It's about what you want. Go get it. Your best life now. Now, I'm not saying these things have caused our culture to be indulgent. I just think they exemplify how indulgent our culture is. And in a culture of indulgence, self-control is not valued. We're not that different, actually, than the Greco-Roman world. It, it, it was roughly the same. For the wealthy and powerful, indulgence was a way of life. It was common. It was what they did. They indulged themselves with parties, with feasts, with food, with wine, with clothing, fancy clothing, uh, with travel and tourism. That was one of the first times tourism became like a big deal. Uh, and with sex, which they just went rampant with that. Not terribly different than our culture. And so when Paul gets to this whole discussion and he rounds out his description of the fruit of the Spirit with self-control, he's pushing back against the culture of his time and ours. In fact, Christianity has always been counter-cultural in this way. Or at least it's meant to be. Because the culture of this world is guided and moved by the forces of darkness. We know that. This is why Jesus became one of us, to show us the way and then make the way possible. And in doing so, he sent us the Holy Spirit. So this whole thing comes full circle, right? So we're going to dig into this passage that describes what kind of self-control a follower of Jesus might exhibit in the world. It's in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 19. If you want to follow along with me there. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. And I have become 
all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. May God bless the reading of this word. Okay. So, he starts off this little section uh, saying he is free from all. Right? Though I am free from all. And he's making a point about his rights. Uh, he, he has rights as an apostle. That's, that's really the focus of what he's talking about. So as an apostle, there were certain expectations of what they would do, but there was also certain sort of rights that came with that. And one of them was that the apostles were to refrain from working so that they could focus and spend their time studying the scriptures and presenting the scriptures and the gospel and teaching the other believers. And they were, they were able then to make a living from those that they served. There was sort of this exchange. We'll study and teach for those of you who are carpenters and masons and farmers, and when y'all get together, we'll teach you and then you can offer us the products that you have. Well, it's, it's like a, a marketplace in a sense. And so we'll make a living from those served. And then in verse 11, he says, if we have sown, this back up before this, the, the part that we read, I'm just capturing that to show you what he's saying. In verse 11, he said, if we sow spiritual, we reap material. In other words, we're sowing spiritual things into you that has value. And so to reap material things back from you, that's an equal exchange. And then he says in verse 14, to proclaim the gospel and make a living by it. That's what he's talking about. So Paul's expectation is right as an apostle is to make a living preaching the gospel. And, and all the apostles would fall into that category, right? He's a servant to all, too. He says that Paul went on and worked anyway. He made tents. We know that. He made them on the side. He, he sold tents in the marketplace. He didn't want his income to become a detriment to these new sort of believers, these Greeks who didn't fully understand apostles and Jewish culture. He didn't want that to stand in the way. He didn't want to put a roadblock in front of the gospel. And so he worked anyway. Uh, but he's also echoing what he said in Galatians 5.13, where he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. See, for Paul, the gospel of Jesus setting him free always led to service. Always. So is that what we see in our lives? Are we using our freedom that we have to serve others? Or are we being selfish with our time and our talents and our finances? 
All the things that we have by the grace of God has every day become treat yourself day. Why did Paul say that freedom leads to service? Well, his goal was to win more people. And the word he uses there is cardaino, and it means to gain or acquire, to profit. It's a term used in the market for trade at that time. And Paul was basically saying that he was trading his freedom for the sake of serving others in hopes of them meeting Jesus. Does that make sense? That's a big step. When I was growing up, we had a term for this. We called it soul winning or soul winners. That was kind of the terminology that got used in the Baptist church back then. Maybe others, maybe y'all are familiar with that terminology. We even were trained to go door to door, kind of like a Kirby vacuum salesman, and, and offer people what we called the plan of salvation. And what was that? It was the Romans road, right? I'm sure most of us know the Roman road. You've probably heard it. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.8, for uh, God showed his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Romans 10.9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, you will be saved. Right? And sometimes they even add Romans 8.1, which is, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But this was basically this sort of bit by bit thing that explained the gospel in a nutshell. As we went door to door, we would present people with this thing. Here's, here's the thing. And all of these things are true. Hear me say that. All of the things I just read, they're all true. But this is very different than introducing people to Jesus. This is introducing people to the doctrines we believe as followers of Jesus, right? Now, the way we introduce people to Jesus is by being like him in their presence. That's, that's different. It's, it's bigger. It's, it takes an investment, a long-term thing. And so that's what we're supposed to look like by serving them by being sacrificial, like Jesus was sacrificial, by pouring into them just as the Spirit pours into us. This is what Paul was talking about when he was talking about self-control. And it's hard to show people Jesus when we're just acting like everyone else. If we walk out of here with nothing else this morning, we should leave knowing that our freedom is meant to become service. Ultimately, if we are serving others, we aren't practicing the kind of self-control that Paul is talking about. In following verses, Paul claimed to be uh, certain things for the kind of people he wanted to reach. Right? And that, that might sound at first like, oh, Paul's kind of putting on a front, like he's being a hypocrite. But that's not what he's talking about. It doesn't mean he practiced the very indulgent lifestyle that he was speaking against when he was around those who did live that way. That's not what it means at all. It actually is a lot simpler than it seems at first glance. It just means that when he was around Jewish folks, he was respectful of the Jewish culture and customs. And when he would follow the Torah code in their presence, he wouldn't 
act out and be crazy, even though he believed he was living under a different law, the law of Christ. We made that clear, right? But with, with those without the law, that's the heathens, the pagans, the Greeks, right, the Gentiles. He didn't insist on conformity to Jewish laws and customs. He was respectful of their laws and customs and, the, and meant for the gospel to sort of look different in their setting than it might maybe in a fully Jewish setting. He talked about the weak, those in, in each group, I think, existing on the margins, sort of the outcasts, the ones who didn't fit in, and how he became like them. He, he saddled up next to them, as we might say. Basically, Paul was offering a bit of detail to explain his previous statement about being a servant to all, right? He's just sort of clarifying. This is how that looks. And so it might look like that to us. Uh, me and Rick were talking about this Wednesday night and, and how if you wanted to share the gospel with a person who was uh, deaf, you would have to learn some form of sign language, right? It doesn't mean you become deaf, but you would have to learn sign language in order to do that. And I don't know any good sign language, so I'm not going to show you any. Sunrise, sunset. That's it. That's really about what I know. But that's the idea, is that you learn to speak in a language that makes sense to the people you're speaking to. Right? And, and I don't know if Christians are great at this. Um, anyway. Paul said that he was going to be all things to all people. Right? Not to join them in whatever they're doing, but for the sake of serving them, for the sake of the, giving them the gospel and the good news. He's not going to act like they can't be here. And that's why I've said from the very beginning of my time here, anyone who walks through that door is welcome. Anyone. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter where they come from. Doesn't matter what their background is. Doesn't matter what ethnicity they are, what language they speak, or even if they're carrying an Arizona iced tea that's not Arizona iced tea because it's filled with bourbon first thing in the morning. There's no better place for them to be than right here in the people of God worshiping and hearing the word proclaimed. So this is a way of relating, a way of communicating. And there's a great example of this, and I think I've talked about this before, but Paul in Acts 17 has gone to Athens, right? And so Athens has this place called the Areopagus, and it's basically sort of the, the it's where the court is held, but it's also the place where different philosophies and ideas were exchanged, and they would talk and have discussions and relate to all that stuff. I don't know if we exactly have that. Ours is on, everything's media now, so it's social, it's everywhere. But Paul had this one spot, so he went there, and he gets to speak, and in Acts 17, 22, he says that, I, I see that you are a very religious people. He's talking to Greeks, pagans, who worship multiple gods, multiple false gods. But he said, he's not being disrespectful. He's not worshiping their gods, but he's not being disrespectful either. He says, I see that you are very religious. And I see that you have this statue. I passed by and I saw it, and it says, to an unknown God. Let me introduce you to that God. Paul uses their culture to speak to them in a way that would make sense to them to introduce them to the gospel. 
1728, he quoted their own philosophers and poets, which means he had to know them. He had to understand their culture to speak into it. He, he talked about, in him we move and live and have our being. That's a quote, we think. That's a quote from a philosopher named Epimenides, who said that in one of his uh, poetic sort of prophecies or whatever. And then there's another word that says, indeed, we are his offspring. And they think that came from a guy named Eris. But those are Greek philosophers and poets that he's pulling from in order to make sense to these people. In 1731, he goes on to say, well, that the world will be judged. And I think I mean, the Greeks already believed that at some point, right? But then he says, by Jesus, that unknown God, this is Jesus. He's the one that's going to come and judge the world. And God raised him from the dead. There we go, right into the gospel, right? Paul knew their culture, he knew their religion, he knew their philosophy and their poetry in order to speak to them to the, pardon me, in order to speak to them in a language that they understand. Now, when I was walking up to doors as a teenager, I didn't really know anything about the people I was talking to. I mean, we think, you know, America is like this one sort of melting pot of culture, but it's not, right? It's not. It depends on where you're at and what kind of, you know, financial situation it is, and there's all kinds of factors that go into it. But I didn't really know anything about the people I was talking to. I mean, yes, the Roman road is true. They are sinners in need of a Savior just as I am. But other than that, I think in order to share the gospel, we need to understand the people that we're sharing it with. We need to be able to join them without joining in with their lifestyles. An example of this from my own life, um, in my connection with the Sol Ross uh, University, there's a lot of students there who are not Christians, but I've been able to interact with them. One of them, his name was Habib. He was a Muslim student there that I met, and he actually came to church here for a while because we built a relationship. And because I had read the Quran, and was able to have a conversation with him about who Isa is, that's Jesus in the Quran, and talk to him and use the Quran as a basis for pulling the gospel out. I'm not saying the Quran is right, so hear me say that. I'm not a Muslim, I haven't converted, I'm not saying that. But the truth is, pieces of it are in there, right? Just like the unknown God in the Greek culture. And so I'm looking for those pieces and I'm pulling them out and having conversations with them. And even to this day, he and his wife go to a Christian church in, uh, they live in uh, North Dallas somewhere, and they go to a Christian church. And I'm, I'm always hopeful for the day when he texts me and says, hey, I believe in Jesus now. But that's what it takes. And I'm planting seeds, and somebody else is watering, and somebody else is going to reap, but I have faith that Habib is going to come to know the Lord. Right? That's what I'm talking about. And that's what it's supposed to look like. We need to be able to join them without joining in their lifestyles. And Christians are typically bad at this. There's a few things that we do instead, right? We either refuse, we shouldn't be associated with sin, and so we isolate ourselves behind the walls and kind of hang back and don't interact with the culture at all. Or we do the opposite and we go sort of headlong and become way too comfortable with it. Or Maybe we're just lazy. 
Maybe that's it. What Paul is talking about and what Jesus and his kingdom are looking for is people who will walk the line between those extremes in order to share the gospel with the people in our culture. And even here in, in Marathon, we can't say that Marathon is one culture. There's many cultures here. Multiple. And I can't even keep track of all of them, right? But there's, there's lots of them. How do we speak into their cultures? We have to know about them. We have to, we have to come outside of them. Not to join with the things, but to know and understand, right? People who have the fruit of the Spirit actively producing self-control in their lives, this is what Paul says that looks like. In verses 32 through 34, Paul used an analogy to sort of help clarify his point further. He said, everyone is running, but there's only one winner. So run to win. How? By exercising self-control. I have a story. This is one of my favorite stories. I'm a, I'm a huge basketball fan, and I forgive me, I'm not a Spurs fan. I love the Rockets, because I'm from Houston. So I'm a Rockets fan. I love the Rockets. But there's, there's also other players that I respect because their game and their talents, their skill, like Michael Jordan on the Bulls or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on the Lakers. There's just different players. One of the players that I have a lot of respect for is Kobe Bryant, right? Uh, and he just he passed away in a helicopter crash, I think it was like four years ago. Uh, but there's a story that uh, Jay Williams tells. Jay Williams was a point guard for the Bulls. And he was telling the story about Kobe Bryant, who's a five-time NBA champion, an 18-time All-Star, right? This kid was an All-Star his first year in the league as an 18-year-old. That's the kind of crazy talent this kid had. So Jay Williams says he, they're going to play. The Bulls are going to play the Lakers. That's who Kobe played for. He said the game was at 7. And this is the, the this is the championship Lakers. In other words, they're coming off their championship. It's their year to defend their championship. It's, it's when they're really great. He says, I'm gonna get to the to the gym, the, the arena at three o'clock, and I want to make sure that I make 400 shots before I go back and get ready for the game that night. I'm gonna sit in the sauna and I'm gonna get ready for the game. This is Jay Williams talking. And he says, Who do I see when I get there? I see Kobe Bryant already working out. Once I set my foot across the line, I started working out, and I worked out for a good hour, hour and a half. And when I came off after I was done, I sat down, and of course, I still heard the ball bouncing. And I looked down, and I'm like, this guy's still working out? It looks like he was in a dead sweat when I got here. That game, he drops 40 on us, 40 points. After the game is over, I'm like, I gotta ask this guy. I have to understand why he works like that. And after the game, I went up to him and I'm like, hey, Kobe, why were you in the gym for so long? And he was like, because I saw you come in and I want you to know that it doesn't matter how hard you work, I'm willing to work harder than you. That's sort of what Paul's talking about. A competitive willingness to exercise self-control to that extent. To devote ourselves to the Holy Spirit, so that the fruit of the Spirit is clearly growing in us. How committed are we to this whole following Jesus thing? How dedicated are we to living well with our neighbors and townsfolk? How devoted are we to exercising self-control for the sake of 
introducing people to Jesus? And how willing are we to lean into the work of the Holy Spirit so that this is all a reality in our life? In verse 26, Paul wrote that he did not run aimlessly, implying that uh, to lack self-discipline was to run aimlessly, like punching at the air for no reason. Our culture encourage us, encourages us to do what we want, to do it how we want, to do it when we want, to do it why we want. That's what our culture says, right? And if we're being honest with ourselves, the church has gone along with this for a good while. There's lots of churches that are built on this idea. What would you like to see? We'll give you that. I went to a church one time. I won't go too far into this story. But they had like people in little go-karts running around the stage acting crazy and then popping out and they were wearing like cartoon costumes. And then the person came out and spoke and tried to relate that. It just didn't, it didn't work. I was like, what are we doing here? It was crazy. But we've been influenced. And we've been lured away from our calling. And we've become comfortable and we've become lazy. We're like a middle-aged person who realizes they need to go on a diet. And I'm guilty of this just as anyone else. We need to be in our community loving our community, serving our community, making our community better for the people that live here. We need to be so committed to this that we are willing to do the work God has set before us with the enthusiastic dedication of someone who will work out so much longer than anyone else just to make sure that the end result is what they're going for. What areas of your life need to be addressed? What areas of our congregation need to be addressed? And what can we do about this right now so that we have grown next week and two months from now and next year and we look different? In Romans 12, 1 through 2, Paul wrote, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What are we going to do with what we've been given? Are we going to have it our way? Are we going to chase after our best life now? Are we going to fight in the church about what things should happen? Or are we going to use our freedom to serve each other and our community so that we're chasing after a reward that is eternal? As we wrap up our time here in the Fruit of the Spirit, may we lean into what God wants to grow in us. And may we always see more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because this is who we're meant to be. Will you pray with me?